Welcome to Inkwell, a podcast from Houston, Texas, for anyone engaged in the world of reading and writing. Inkwell is brought to you by Tintero Projects, which showcases the work of national and international Latinx and Latin American writers through readings and workshops, and Inprint, a literary arts nonprofit which, since 1983, conducts readings, workshops, and other programs to promote creative writing and reading and supports writers. Inkwell hosts Jasmine and Lupe Mendez, writers, educators, activists, and founders of Tintero Projects, will interview emerging and established writers from across the United States with energy, wit, and fresh perspective on what it means to ink well in this day and age. Hello, and welcome back to Inkwell, a podcast that is a collaboration between Tintero Projects and And Imprint. I am one of your hosts, Jasmine Mendez. And I'm the other host, Lupa Mendez. And we have our guest here, Addy Sai. Can you say hello? Hello. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining us on this balmy Friday evening it's in Houston. It's a nice, crisp, I, Yeah, cool it is a little evening. cool, but it's been so muggy and like gray the last week. I don't know. I haven't been here the whole week. You were gone two days. That's more than... Two days is not a week. He was in D.C. promoting his book, doing a reading for Split This Rock. Whoa, whoa. whoa. Uh, it was a good time, and Jasmine was here at home taking care of our child. Of a sick child, by myself, while you were gallivanting about. Stop it. I was gone for one day and a half. I was back at like four. And, and you just were doing so happened to be class. when she was sick. She he plans always, that. This is the second time that he's no, done no, no, this. No, 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 no. This is the second time the where I'm leaving, sick. and then the child gets sick. And then I'm like up all night with a coughing sick child. But that's, that's okay, because, you know, women hold it down. Was me beating You're the holding table. me down. <laughs> Y'all, this is wild. It's Friday night. We're getting wild up in here. Uh, so uh, today we are here with Addie as we talk about um, her newest book, Dear Twin. I say relatively new. It's, yeah, it's fresh. It's no, fresh. It's new. Yeah, it because is new. Because we were also, we were supposed to, uh, full disclosure, we were supposed to do this interview much sooner, but our schedules were always nuts, so... We're just glad you're here now. Yeah. And I'm so excited because this is our first YA author. That's right. YA book. Josh, can you do the debut book? Like, we're so excited to talk about this. So, yeah, this will be a good time. Promote it for the YA folks and the adults that read YA, which is like a thing. Which is still YA folks. That's all the same. No, it's not written for us. What? I mean, that's like a thing. We can, talk about, we can so, talk about it. No, anyway. I'm saying they do. They do read it, but like the intent is for like the YA. Oh, for younger audience. readers. Yeah, oh, of that's course. Right. YA. Yeah. Duh. Okay. So young adult. Okay. Those who are not keen to the literary lingo. <laughs> that's, that's, YA is young adult me. poet. Books. Um. Okay. <laughs> wow. What did you just like poet? Like I don't know what's happening. Anyways. Um. Okay. All that said. Um. So, I guess kind of like in discussing stuff, I'm curious because this is. Because of the fact that the way the book is is a conversation and letter writing and the focus on siblings and twins, I don't have any of that happening. You're not missing out on much. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love my siblings. Wow. I do. So that is the question. <laughs> so that is the question that I've always like like looked at is I'm curious and I'm constantly like like you don't know how sibling relationships work. Like you're constantly getting after me about like. Why don't you? Why are you just? Why don't you stay mad at your brother? And I'm like, because it's my brother. Like you so just, you she, know what I mean. Like, she cut and me off before I could finish my <laughs> statement. I was actually say, I was gonna say that I am all, uh, like in, in awe or 
at wonder in the way sibling relationships work. Like, yeah. where, like, what are there, are there moments where you're like all together on an idea or are you always bickering or? I mean, like, I think, it, I don't think that there's like a always, like, it's not like that black and white. You know what I mean? Like we were always on the same page when it came to like, no matter what any of us did, do not tell mom and dad, because then you're all going to get it. at least like in a brown household. <laughs> like if any one of you tattletales on the other, you're all going to get in trouble for it. So it's better to just like keep each other's secrets and like hide things from your parents. Well, That's that, that was my MO. <laughs> my brother and sister just kind of went along with it because I was like the alpha male of the group, if you will, even though I was a middle child. Because you're bossy. Right. Because I was independent and strong. Those See, see how your male version of my descriptions is, you know, but yeah, so it's, and then that's the other thing too, is like different siblings sort of play different roles. And there's like all the psychology behind like what older siblings are turn out to be and what middle siblings and, you know, the youngest and the baby. And, um, I did suffer for a while from like that middle child syndrome of like, I'm so neglected. Nobody loves me. Um, to then, but that, but that's like what I thought and felt. Whereas, like, what my how my brother and my sister saw and do see me is like a, a totally different. Like, they're like, you're the favorite, and I'm like, no, I just kind of grew up to be the most productive. <laughs> so now my parents are like, good on you, girl, because we ignored and you, I'm, and so you became independent. But so I always <laughs> like I wonder too, like how much of that is like also a cultural thing because we've had mm. conversations about yeah. like in a Mexican household, like the only or the first catches. All depends. the responsibility. No, but even then, it depends if the oldest is a boy or a girl. It's a very gendered thing. Well, see, in a Mexican in a Mexican household, like the oldest boy does, like will be thrown to the wolves of like manhood stuff at a much. Yeah, earlier. but he's not necessarily responsible for all the other siblings. The oldest daughter, regardless of whether she's like the second born or like if you're the oldest daughter I, in most like Latino that's also families. The thing like, too is like, and even not just like I've had other like like women of color friends who are like the eldest daughter, like eldest immigrant daughter is like it's like I think even a hashtag on Twitter because of like all of the things that like are put on you as like the oldest daughter of immigrants, usually like you're responsible for like all the siblings, for the housework when your parents aren't there, for like maintaining the house, for doing all these things because you're like, your role is like second mom basically. But then you still have like no freedom. It's terrible. <laughs> is that why you snuck out of the house? I didn't, I never, don't be telling lies on me. I never snuck out. She's pointing I snuck the finger at me. people in. Oh, so that's just as good. That's good. <laughs> There's a difference. That's good. Let's yeah. let's discuss. I this. never snuck out. You snuck in, yeah. folks, <laughs> is what you're saying. Thanks. But Mom. if you were gonna have a sibling, would you want a twin? Do you think like it's like a, a thing you would want? I don't know if my house would have blown up or not if there were two of us because you don't even like that I'm super chipper and happy. Well, maybe your like brother or sister would have been like the opposite. In that case, we would have like, then the house would have blown up because that, I know, like that's difficult. If I like, I don't know, a part of growing up too was I would, there were moments where I was like, oh, I'm sad. I don't have siblings. If my parents pass away, mm -hmm. no one's there to help me remember what they were like, but- Without having savings, like, oh, I'm kind of glad I don't have these savings because this, like, growing up around yeah, this I mean, stuff was, is, that's difficult. And as, I don't want to have to put anybody else through that kind of experience. Yeah. But then, like, going through things, there are moments where, like, yeah, this would have been good to have, but no, that didn't happen. So, I don't know. I Like, for my creativity and imagination, being an only kid was awesome because I had to figure it out and you just go through the world that way. Not entirely isolated, but 
there's moments where you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to go hang out over here and do this other thing. You know, you make me sad and I feel like Luce is going to need a sibling, but I really don't want to do that again. No, that's, that's, <laughs> but I think like, I think too, like, I feel like, like as I wonder you know. about what's, what life is like for folks who have siblings, I also am real grateful that like opportunities I've had to build quote unquote, like the other family that I keep, yeah. like all and the friends, friends that I can yeah. figure out as family. Like I've got to build that and I've had really strong relationships because I don't have the whole concept of siblings from a really young age. Like I get to build those bonds differently. No, you, yeah, I mean, your friends are like the family that you choose and you can decide. Right. Whereas like your siblings, like you're just stuck. You're just stuck with you're them. Just stuck Is with that them. the way you should <laughs> even phrase it? I don't even know if that's your phrase. Um, but so yeah. we're going to continue this great conversation with uh, our author, Addie Sai, um, as she talks about her book, Dear Twin, uh, right after Josh puts on the cute little at the end of this thingy. And we'll be back in a sec. And uh, and we're back. Uh, you're listening to Inkwell, um, which is a collaborative podcast with uh, Imprint and Tintero Projects. Um, I'm one of your co-hosts, Lupe Mendez. And I'm Jasmine Mendez. Yes, we are married. <laughs> she just was like, yeah, we're married. Um, well, there- I mean, we could be siblings, but that would be weird. <laughs> you know, I Whoa. mean... I- Anyway, what? moving right along. <laughs> okay. Um, all that. I'm glad so. that's your reaction to <laughs> your wife. I don't know how I feel about that. Because you said siblings. Why would I want that's Okay, right. Moving along. What? Cut all that, Josh. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> so we'll go. Here's the bio um, for Addie because I don't have it memorized and I should have memorized it, but I didn't. Um, Addie side teaches courses in literature, creative writing, dance, and humanities at Houston Community College. She collaborated with Dominic Walsh Dance Theater on Victor Frankenstein and Camille Claudel, among others. Addie holds an MFA from Warren Wilson College and a PhD in dance from Texas Women's University. Doctor? I didn't know that. I didn't? No. I should have read the bio. I apologize. I didn't know that. I'm going to just be like, doctor. Um... The whole time for that's this. Amazing. I'm just um, kind of about Sa- this dance. Yeah. That's like the great, that's like a really great name for a show, like Dr. Saw. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, her writing has been published in uh, Benango Street, The Offing, The Collegist. Did I say that right? I think I said that right. Um, the Feminist Wire, Nat Brute. And elsewhere, she is the nonfiction editor of The Grief Diaries, associate fiction editor at Anomaly, and senior associate editor in poetry at The Flexible Persona. She's the author of the queer Asian young adult novel, Dear Twin. Ladies and gentlemen, Adisai. Josh is where you can put like applause in it. Yeah. My bedroom wall is lined with a white wooden bookshelf Baba made for me in the backyard just after our 10th birthday. He built Lola one too, identical to the one shoved against the bedroom wall that runs into the door. Cut from cheap plywood, the paint even but not as thick and creamy as we would have liked. The whiteness of the shelf stands out against the beige of the carpet, our walls. The shelves Baba made for his daughter are as identical as our rooms that bookend our side of the house on the second floor. Our rooms that bookend the house are as identical as we are. 
As if identical wasn't bad enough. With mirror twins, the egg splits later than usual. If it had split any later, we could have ended up conjoined, like Chang and Ung, forever attached. When the egg splits, it already has a left side and a right. Two embryos swim alongside their mirror image. I'm left-handed and Lola's right. We have the same little dot above our lip, except mine's on the left, hers on the right. In some cases, mirror twins' hair might whirl in opposite directions, or their first teeth might pop up on opposite sides of their mouths. Even their fingerprints could be mirror images of one another. In the scariest cases, one mirror twin is born with her organs where they're supposed to be, while her twin's organs grow on the opposite side of her body. We were born with some minor complications, but we'd soon discover it was the circumstances of our parents that placed us in the most danger. I was born at 5.30 on a Saturday morning in late January. Lola was born 10 minutes later. I was born 5 pounds, 14 ounces. Lola was born 5 pounds, 10 ounces. The nature of our birth was yet another barb we traded back and forth, my tit for her tat. Someone, anyone would ask, how far apart were you born? Lola would answer 10 minutes, her eye roll ready to launch as I would retort, more like 10 years. Lola loved that she was the smaller one at birth. She would point at the baby pictures of us standing in the bright summer grass, naked except for our matching puffy white diapers, insistent you could tell my bottom was bigger than hers, my belly rounder. We were like our own comedy act. I played the clown, she played it straight. But something happened when the doctor pulled Lola out, which cast my story in turn. Lola's hip popped as she was being born. From that rift, our story spun. Her hip popped, which somehow came to mean that she was more vulnerable than I was and that I must have kicked and kicked my way out so that I could be first, so that I could get away from her and our tiny container of two. My four extra ounces at birth meant I was destined to be the thicker, curvier one. Lola's hip popping, which led to an x-ray to ensure the situation wasn't serious, spun her story too, that she was broken from birth. If she was broken, I was whole. If she could break, then by the very definition of mirror twinning, nothing could ever be wrong with me. Lola would become defined by the breaking of her body, a breaking that would result in feeling wanted, feeling seen. The fact that my bone did not sing of brokenness meant I would never want or need for anything. With that one little pop signaling her arrival in the world, the soundlessness of my own bones in that same room meant I would be marked as the invisible one. I suppose we both couldn't have been the seen ones. We were twins. There always has to be an odd one out. The question of the safety of her body made her remarkable, for better or for worse. When twins are born, each and every detail of our twinned bodies is held up to the light like a piece of someone else's mail you want to dissect secretly. Just the act of flashing a light through that envelope reframes its mysterious contents. The need to witness whatever is inside becomes an act of suspicion. Twins are born, and without much question or choice, they become part of this thing much larger and snakier than themselves. They become things. But here's the thing, they don't even know it's happening. But here's the thing, they don't know why it matters. And when they realize it does, it's often too late. Mm. Thank you. So I have to ask, are you a twin? I am a twin. I didn't want to just presume. Oh my goodness. So is that, because that was my other question is sort of what was the impetus for um, this, this this book? Um, and, and then the, the follow-up to that is like, 
why YA, right? Like sort of what drove you to, mm-hmm. to write in that genre? Yeah, so um, I wrote a memoir a few years before I wrote this book and it was under contract and then the press sort of fell through and oh. so the contract fell through and it just gave me um, time to kind of reevaluate what I wanted to do with the book and the book was basically divided into two halves. One half was this, mm-hmm. um, something that happens to my sister as an adolescent that's dealt with in the book that I fictionalized in the book and then the other half was sort of how my... Um, my adult life was sort of formed by this thing. Mm-hmm. And I was reading a lot of, so, you know, the, the memoir fell through. I was devastated. It was my mm-hmm. first book contract. And, um, and I was reading a lot of YA at the time, and I was getting really annoyed by certain things <laughs> in the YA that I was reading. And, and so I thought, well, if there's anyone that I really want to impact with this story, mm. it, I really wanted to impact either... Um, you know, young young women, young people, probably from age 18 to 22, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, people our age-ish that are, like, looking back at that time of their life. Yeah. And so um, so it sort of started from, from that place. And then I was reading, you know, a lot of YA does really annoying things with... Well, a lot of pop culture does really <laughs> annoying <you> <laughs> things with twins yeah. um, that are sort of exacerbated in YA. So there's this sort of horror theme, like The Shining. There's mm-hmm. um, Which you mentioned in the book. There's which that, I there's mentioned in the yeah, book, yeah. yeah. And, um, or that or that twins are some sort of like phantom, creepy sort of situation. Right, yeah, yeah. And and then there is, there's a lot of YA books that will just throw twins in as an easy way to have multiple siblings for a character without having to develop them. Harry um. Potter does. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's right. I'm not a big Harry Potter. Um, not a, like, but I feel like they're, I haven't, I don't really know it fully, like don't quote me on this, but I feel like they're, they do kind of develop as like the, as it goes the on, but go not, on, but not in the beginning, yeah. But even then, of, they're still they're not like so developed that like there's not like a side story of them doing something. They're just a part of like I mean, the larger. Yeah. But this pieces. is not about them. So anyway, that's true. Continue. So anyways, continue. <laughs> so, and we're saying they, which goes to my next point. Oh. Yes, um, which is that you never see twins having independent individual, individual lives and identities. Um, hmm. They tend to be sort of. I mean, they tend to be sort of what people who aren't twins fantasize about twins, sure. which is that. They're sort of the same person and sort of an imaginary friend and sort of your best friend (laughs) and sort of like a reflection of yourself. Be bonded for life and love them eternally, which I'm sure the love is there, but it's like, yeah, like as mentioned in the book, like there is a division. There's like, and this desire to be independent and be your own person. Yeah. And I think there's this complexity that has very, very rarely been dealt with throughout, you know, any depiction of it. And I sort of felt like in, well, now we're in 2020, but in 2019, 2018, um, there's so many more multiple births happening because of the accessibility of in vitro right, and these right. other technologies, these reproductive technologies that I felt that there was actually a, a real place for right. readers who are either, you know, mothers or, or fathers of um, multiples, multiples mm-hmm. or multiples themselves sort of coming up and having no... No books of, that that's are true, centering that are, right. this kind of identity. That, that, yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's right. Very true. Yeah. So yeah. So can you tell our listeners a little bit, just without you know any spoilers, just kind of like the premise of aside from the twin relationship that we have? Yeah. So um, the the book basically has two aspects to it. 
and to narrative structures to mm-hmm. it. So um, Poppy's main character, she's 18, and her sister has mysteriously gone missing. Mm-hmm. Her name is Lola. And so the fa- and they're basically mostly raised by a single Asian father. And so the father has gotten, you know, very understandably, like, nervous. So Poppy can't really go to college because he's sort of, like, has her in the house. And so in order to sort of free herself, she writes a series of letters to Lola, to um, a post office box that Lola has, hoping that there's going to be a way to bring her back. And... One of the the ways that she's hoping to do that is to sort of tell her side of the story of things that happened during their pretty difficult childhood. And then um, while that's going on, she has this relationship with Juniper, who is her girlfriend, who is Korean. And and she's sort of like a respite from all of the Mm -hmm. difficult things she's dealing with with her family. Mm -hmm. So it's half in epistolary format, so it's half written right. in letters and half in like traditional narrative. Yeah, and I'm always really, I've been reading more YA recently, not, I'm not like totally in, in the culture of it and all that, but I've been reading uh, more and I'm just always so um, intrigued by by writers, you know, adult writers who choose to, to go that route because I'm always curious like, what is that research like? Do you just like non-creepily sit around a bunch of teens to like, really? Because you know, like like if I were to write a YA book, it would be like coached in so much 90s slang that like YA kids would be like, what in the heck is this book even about? Like what is going on? Because it's not how we speak, you know? But I feel like there were so many references and just the language was very like, quote unquote, authentic, right? For lack of a better word, to that YA experience. And so I'm just curious, like, I'm so out of touch with teens. Like, I would not even know how to write a book for them, you know? So what was that like like for you? Yeah, it's actually, I'm glad that you said that because you never really know what you're doing when you're writing from another age group yeah. who's going through a different Lord time period. Yeah. Um, and I definitely had some like ana- an- anachronistic things that I had to get, rid of or sort of make more vague. But um, yeah, I was reading a lot of YA and then, but really the the main character is, I'm, I'm sort of like re-envisioning my young mm-hmm. self, mm-hmm. but with like the technological innovations <laughs> of today. Oh. Yeah, 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 I see that. So that's sort I can, of, sense that, yeah, yeah I can see um, that. But, but it's funny because you're sort of doing it in the dark. And then mm-hmm. I remember the first reading I had in Santa Ana where I had like a queer teen of color in the audience for the mm-hmm. first time. And she started cooing and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of making these noises while I was reading. I was like, oh, good. Because I was actually not sure if it if would it read work, right. teens, to teens. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's a very awkward sort of thing. But I did really write this book to be a cross-genre between... Um, YA lit and literary fiction because I really yeah. feel like the the genre is building so fast and that yeah. there's really a space for that nuance that I, I just yeah. didn't really see happening in mainstream YA. Yeah, yeah and I see that too. I mean, I, I feel like some of that were was with... Uh, some might call it risks taking in the sense of like the footnotes um, mm-hmm. as well. And that, I, and that I really enjoyed reading. I was like, oh, this is where that literary, like, <laughs> all that literary knowledge is coming in with the, you know, the Lolita references and, um, you know, even just some of the movie and pop culture references that are that are put in there. So what, what was that choice like or why make that choice specifically? I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, there's, you know, being a twin and also being um, biracial, I'm half Chinese, half white and you know, also sort of fluid in terms of my queerness and my gender identity. It's, I'm always sort of operating from an intertextual space. So it doesn't really make (laughs) sense to me to to go from one. I love it. Um, And 
And I wanted the footnotes to sort of be in conversation with the text or to sort of be creating a shadow underneath um, mm. what, what she's saying. But the, it's interesting you bring up the footnotes because that was like the main reason that I had a hard time getting an agent. I can, that yeah, was, I can yeah, see. one of the I was, first I was things wondering I that. Say. Yeah, I was like, because the footnotes and then the, the use of um, opinion, like the Chinese, um, mm-hmm. not the Mandarin characters, but like how it, you know, it sounds. Um, I was wondering if you had any pushback with that because I imagine if we get it when we put Spanish words in there, like what, you know, and it wasn't too often, but I, you know, it was sprinkled in there, I think. And so was that like an issue for... I, th- I mean, um, the the press of the book ultimately lived with metonymy has been just really amazing, and they you know ha- they had a opinion editor sort of look at things, and um, and they had no problem with anything that I was doing, but but I had a previous press who I had to actually like pull away from because they just they were just not. I don't know that they knew what they accepted when they accepted because they started having all these problems like four weeks before release date. What? That's when they first tried to give me edits and it no. was just not good. Um, so yeah, and and they had issues, that press had issues with you know some of the Instagram posts and some of the images and I was just very um, attached to all the intertextual elements because also I feel like the the young person in today's world is with very, is all about that. All about is all about it image, from video yeah. yeah all of it and yeah. then you know even the internet which I didn't have until until I was really like a freshman in college the number of different types of texts that they're getting to read and consume mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that are multimedia right. so it doesn't make sense to me that a a young person would only be you know, sort of in this like one generic mode. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so all those things were really important to me, but it did make it hard to find. Like I knew I was never going to find a traditional publisher. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions I was thinking of was, you had mentioned before that the work you were doing before was was a memoir that hadn't, um, the, the press had not been able to accept it. It had folded and you moved on. How did... As you were reading the why and as you were looking at what you had, I guess if you had to give it like a percentage, like was how much of what you had constructed before from the memoir shifted into what this became in the YA work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, or did any of it, like did were there a few strands that you were able to pull into this other work or or how much of it is... is yeah, so the book is the book is pretty autobiographical. I mean, it's definitely fiction. It's highly fictionalized, but um, but there's a lot of a lot of me in it, and so I would say that there are some moments that I rewrote into fiction into the book, but there's nothing I took from the memoir over, um, mostly because the the genres were so different and the story mm-hmm. was so different, and and I I didn't want to get. I mean, I still got confused, you know? <laughs> there were still times where my editor was like, this timeline is wonky because I was like going back and forth between yeah, my memory yeah. and the fictionalized story that I was telling. Um, but yeah, so I, but I think like in actuality, probably like maybe in terms of content, I mean, probably like 50% cool. is pretty cool, close cool. to it, yeah. Um, was it? How do I phrase this? How was it difficult at all, like flipping, going from like, I've completed a memoir, ta-da, to like, I'm going to totally switch gears and go into this. For, like, did did you have to use a different 
I don't know, sense of like like writing or like process process format. Like, did you have a different set of notes? Like, did you frame what this narrative was going to look like previously? Were you shooting from the hip? Like, cause those are completely different formats, of course. So like, how did that writing look like? Like, what was the process like? Yeah. So I should probably talk a little bit about my weird evolution as a a writer. (laughs) Writer, dancer, all the great things. I know, all the things. So I, tr- <laughs> Tell you know. us, Dr. Sai. Tell us. Well, I got yeah. my degree um, at Warren Wilson in poetry mm. oh. and then in 2005. And um, it was a very different world for poetry back then. And I finalized and I got very quickly frustrated by the, um, the publishing world of poetry at that time. Um, in terms of how, who was, what people of color were being published and what mm-hmm. queer writers were being published. Um, this was before internet journals were really happening as they're happening now. Um, Kave Kanam was sort of it. Kundiman had just started. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like the same sort of writers were getting published. So I, I just got very frustrated. Yeah. And, um, and also I just started wanting to push past the, the form itself. And so the, the poems got bigger and then they turned into prose poems <laughs> and got longer and turned into lyric essays yeah. and then I started writing a memoir. Um, that, the, the, that My debut would be a novel is actually kind of amusing to me because when I was getting my undergrad at U of H, I actually petitioned to get a personal essay class to replace my fiction requirement because I was mm. terrified of writing oh, wow. fiction. fiction. Although I started with fiction as a teenager, but not not right. like serious fiction. I was writing basically fan fiction of Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicle. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, and they were twin vampires, and of it was course. very Queen of the Damned. <laughs> <laughs> they were called Juliet and Josephine, and they were like from way back. I love it. I'm gonna need you to finish. I that. know. I feel like <laughs> I'm gonna need you to do I feel like that. we all need to just like have a website of like our, you know, I know back they in the weren't called writings. fan fiction, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so yeah, so. Um, so I was already starting to kind of explore genres in general, but um, but the the YA was actually an experiment. I had no actual thoughts of getting it published. I was just like, I'll just do this thing, and then I wrote mm-hmm. I wrote it very quickly in like a month, and I um, I took you know I took a little bit of notes, but I didn't outline anything, um, and I just had. There were uh, experiences that I that Poppy was going to have, or that she was going to tell Lola, or that she was going to have with her girlfriend Juniper, and so I would basically work on, you know, sort of like a narrative thing at a time, mm-hmm. and then and I did that, you know, once a week. Um, but it's just I I really like to write intuitively, and so even though I'm a hyper Virgo, I <laughs> it's writing is the place where I try to actually. Um, relinquish the kind of control that I sort of take on other areas of my life. So I didn't really actually want to organize it too much. And then um, once it was down, then I kind of like looked and yeah, I went back in to see what I had. Did you, that same understanding when you were working on the memoir, did that exist much more succinctly? Like were you much more organized in that framework or did this feel like totally different as you were putting it together? It felt harder than the memoir because I sort of, well, I had been writing nonfiction long enough to feel like I could 
do it. And also, I didn't really have to think about some of the like thematic mm. things you have to think about with fiction. Like, mm. your character has to change. It has to go through a journey. There has to right. be conflict. You know, sort of these sort of things that... Um, that readers of fiction are sort of drawn to and that teachers of fiction talk about. Um, I wasn't trained in either of fiction or nonfiction, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I was sort of like, what am I doing? But um, yeah, so in, in that way it was harder in the sense that I, I was having to really think about the architecture of it. And I think with the memoir, the what I was really most um, focused on was just making sure that I really focused on me and didn't really like mm-hmm. spend all of it talking about like, my sister. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm also, I really loved, um, one of the things that Lupe and I talk about often is um, how few novels and movies and experiences are set in Houston, despite how big the mm. city is, right? It's either like New York, LA, Chicago, like all of those wonderful places. Um, but like, there's so much rich, like history and literature and lives and people experiencing things. And I love just those tiny details of like, at Herman Park, at Boomtown Coffee, where like, if you're a Houstonian, you're like, I know that place. Like you feel really in there. And so obviously it was a deliberate choice, but did you receive any pushback on that? On like being that specific with like setting your characters? Yeah, in this space, like very specifically Houston, especially a a place that that does have a history for being um, like the second has, or used to, I don't know what the the statistic is now, but the second largest like queer population, like a population Mm -hmm. like in like the US, you know? Yeah, I knew that I always wanted to set it in Houston. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, it, it is the city I'm most familiar with, but also there's so, at any time Houston is shown anywhere, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> it's That's terrible. Like, look at the floods. And half the time, look you know, at even then it's like, it's like so Texas stereotypical that I'm like, that's Dallas, not Houston. I know. Like, that's not a good depiction of us. Like, this well, is not a- well, then recently, like, oh, no, there was an explosion. Or right. it's a high school kid stuff. got shot. Yeah, like, Har- yeah. Harvey, Harvey um, air yeah. quality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cancer, like all of the things that, you know. Yeah, yeah. so there's like barbecue, like these just very right. stereotypical mm-hmm. Texas things. Um, actually, I got into this argument with this Hawaiian on this like Facebook this multiracial Facebook group because he was like, I said, well, Houston's the most diverse city in the country. And he said, no, I don't think so. I'm sure it's LA or New York. Like, you've never even been, been here. here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Here's a 2012 Kinder study in a PDF format. Read <laughs> yeah, this. It's very interesting, like, the way people that don't. people they respond push back on to it. Houston. Yeah. And then also, I mean, Austin is great, you right. know, but Austin is... I mean, in terms of diversity, not, it's not, not at and all. It's so conservative. People think, ew, Austin, keep it weird. <laughs> I'm like, Austin is so conservative. <laughs> like, actually, you know, there's, yeah. Yeah, anyway. it's a very, yeah, it's so weird. it's a very interesting, and I, you know, I really enjoy Austin, but but it is interesting how even Austin has gotten to have a more accurate sort of depiction of itself aside from mm-hmm. that, um, just in terms of like the general culture of right. itself. And I think Houston, it's really just destruction and then these very stereotypical sort of rodeo images. So I really wanted the book to also kind of talk about the places that you never hear Houston mm-hmm, mm-hmm. talked about, like you know, Clear the, like Clear Lake, <laughs> um, Montrose, yeah. you right, know, right. you know, some of these, some of these places that young people would be interested in and would be going to. And, and um, I, I mean, I wrote it before Lot by Brian Washington was published, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but I was very happy to see like a, you know, a popular publishing house take on a book that, 
yeah. Center Houston, Center like Houston, so prominently. For sure. Yeah, I just, I feel like we always get like a crappy deal because I'm like, we're the fourth largest city in the country and no one ever, like, we don't get mentioned. No one, you know, just like, Houston, what's in Houston, I'm, Texas? I'm actually, <laughs> yes, it's, there's it's, that, but there's also other great I, things. So I think it's also really important to note, like, the the fact that that's, I think that, it's, that shift is slowly yeah, I mean, happening. and well, because we have all these like transplants and people coming in because the rest of the country like has no jobs or, you know, for the longest people and those people are like moving to here because, you know, our economy relatively stayed okay during all of the craziness in 2008 and beyond. But yeah, so, so yeah. it is it is shifting for sure, but it's still, we've got a ways. Um, so the book is complete. It's an amazing book. It's a good read. What? What are you working on? Don't do what is next. I hate that. <laughs> I hate when people ask me that question because it's like, I just finished a thing. This is blood, sweat, and tears in this thing. And now you're still asking me like, <laughs> You decided to I'm cut projecting. me off <laughs> and projected a question that I didn't get to finish. Okay. <laughs> Josh, on. if you want to strike that whole yelling fit. Actually, don't strike that. Leave that in there. What I was going to ask is, what are you working on that isn't a book thing? Like, are you back to any other practices? What other art are you into? Like, what are you listening to? Like, all those things. Like, oh. how are you taking care of yourself now that this is out in the world? That's such an interesting question. I was actually more prepared for that. <laughs> and then you can answer. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. Um, well, something I do just for just for fun, um, just for like my own practice is I take uh, some, well, most of them are double exposures. So I take f- photos, they're oh, self portraits yeah. and they're double exposures. And um, I usually, I'm really interested in doing them on film, although I do do them digitally at times. But lately I've been doing them on Polaroid, on old pol- Polaroid, because I found this trick of how to do double exposures on Polaroid. What? Yeah, which you basically like trick the camera into thinking it's take taken the photo already and then you turn it off before it has a chance for it to go out of the Mm. camera and then you turn it back on and you take another photo and so it thinks that the photo's already come out but it just does it on top of it ladies and gentlemen learn something new every day Dr. (laughs) Sai amazing world of science those Polaroid tricks yeah that's that's awesome I yeah I learned something new that's that's pretty cool. That's it. So, so can you tell us about the dance, though? I need to know about this dance life, about, like, this doctorate of dance. It's, yeah, it's probably here. not as um, exotic as it sounds, but, um, yeah, I got a PhD in dance studies that basically, I have a very um, non-traditional relationship to dance, but I've loved it since I was a child, and mm-hmm. I've I've done a lot of different things. The only thing I've done really consistently was um, classic Argentine tango. So I did that for a number wow. of years. Yeah, and that's amazing. Yeah, I traveled all over the country, and um, also in Canada, and went to festivals. But um, you know, it's just not something I could sustain. It's very late at night. You know, it's it's just a lot to do. But. Um, but when I did the work with Dominic Walsh, which you mentioned in my bio, which was more like dramaturgic work, mm-hmm. that's yeah. when I got really excited about thinking about dance academically and knowing that I could that I just didn't really have the life to pursue dance the way that other dancers have. I um I thought it would just be really great to get some guidance on how to write about dance and to find out who the scholars are in dance studies. Yeah. And so I was sort of the anomaly because everyone else like came from a pretty traditional dance background, but um, but I actually worked on dance within pop culture. So, I mean, I can tell you my little dissertation <laughs> feel if you want, 
But <laughs> basically, I um, I was looking into the stereotype of straight white men being unable to dance or dancing badly in mm. pop culture, um, starting with Eddie Murphy Raw's sketch and kind of going through like TV, film, and video, and sort of looking at how it was it was coming out of kind of like the the AIDS paranoia and like basically oh. the worse you danced as a straight white male the more masculine that you appear in the, in the culture. Yeah. And so that's sort of what I was looking at, wow. which also, yeah. And it, it went to like very different trains, but it went to some queer studies, but also black studies because mm. often to dance white meant you either, you were either JT, you were either sort of taking on blackness. And so right, I looked right, at right. minstrelsy a little bit, um, or you were just trying to like dance dorky or, you know, right, right, that right. sort that of thing. Not, yeah. So, um, the yeah. Carlton, right? Yeah, that yeah, was, I mentioned Carlton. that in the yeah. dissertation. The, yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that, that was him dancing white. Right. Which right. part of it was to look as though you, I mean, he had rhythm, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't think because he's, he's like, has Dominican in him, so I'm not, not going to hear No, he's it. Dominican, right? He's, he's Dominican, full yeah. Dominican. I don't know if he's full Dominican. He's full Dominican. But I'm not sure. But, uh, and that's interesting too, because because that shows up a little bit in the book too, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, Poppy like you know says that she wants to dance, but then Lola's like, I don't like this, and so then they're like, no longer going to dance. Class. Which is true, actually, yeah. that did oh, happen. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sad. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, but I do. I have to ask, like, even if this is the last question before you read another selection, um, the names Lola and Poppy. What was the? Where did that come from? Yeah, they're that's just a so good original. Question. Um, Poppy. Well, okay, so in real life, my name's Addie, my twin sister's name is Emma, so I did want one of them to end, like I wanted them to end oh, with the same sound. Okay. And and Emma was actually named after Madame Bovary, and so I wanted it to be sort an like equally kind of yeah, interesting, <laughs> Yo, complex namesake. Yeah, um, I just got that. That's that's awesome. Yeah, so Lolita and right, Madame right. Bovary, um, and then. And I, Poppy, what I did want there to be like a floral symbol. I don't know why. It just kind of just happened. Yeah, happened. I'm just you know? curious. I just didn't know if there was yeah. like more. You know, like I don't know. It's interesting. But Lola like for it. sure was coming out of Lolita, but I didn't want it to be super obvious either. So, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Lolita would be a little bit much. But. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, would you care to read, read one more selection? One more selection. Oh yeah, sure. Okay. Before we get to our lightning round. Pew, pew, pew. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Your sound sounds totally different than how Josh will. Okay, actually, in this one, we'll mention The Shining. <laughs> but this is the truth. We love each other. Our primary role in the family is to be those tre- precious twins everyone coos at and gasps at like babies or old-time circus freaks. Besides, twins are always creepy, right? Didn't you see The Shining? Baba dressed us alike so he could be a hit with his Asian immigrant friends, and our white mother dressed us alike so she could attract more of her favorite foreign barflies and clubbers she loved to bring home, like turning her daughters into two gold fireflies held in a mason jar with a promise to release them into the starry night just as soon as she's caught the attention of her prince. But then she is so swept up with her prince she forgets the fireflies are still trapped in the mason jar on a coffee table in the other room gathering dust, and the fireflies stay quiet hoping the longer they do, the sooner the fireflies can become daughters again. And then the mother never really does remember the jar, the fireflies, the starry black night that is their home, or even her daughters. 
So in the jar they remain until the prince breaks their mother's heart and leaves her, which he always does, and she needs them again. But while they are waiting to become human, to distract themselves from their mother's occasional and recurring disappearance or their father's unthinking rage, the twin girls giggle underneath their thrift store quilt on their double mattress in their mother's small apartment as they perform twin impressions of their father's Mandarin for fun, or at least try to, incomprehensible as their father's language is to both of them. They record themselves on their mother's old boombox, singing and acting out The Little Mermaid, their favorite, and then play back the recording while pointing at each other and giggling, their two faces turning as red as the pair of suckers their mother brings home from the bank. They hold each other in the bed they share while they wait for their mother to come home from the club, desperately hoping that their mother will come upon them, soft and sentimental in her tipsy haze, and clutch her hand to her heart at the sight of her twin girls and their doubled love. Thank you. You've been listening to Addie Sai, author of Dear Twin, out now. So please pick it up at your local indie bookstore, preferably. Mm-hmm. Yes, Dear Twin by Addie Sai. And we'll be back with our lightning round of questions. And we're back. Um, okay, so if you're if you decided to fast forward this. To the amazing interview, shame on you. But now you get to the lightning round because some people turn you like, I keep cutting you off. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just stop talking now and <laughs> drink my lukewarm coffee. You're now in the part of the recording <laughs> that's the, the lightning round. And if you didn't listen to the interview, just, you know, go back a little and listen to the, the interview part too. So, uh, okay. So we're going to do the lightning round. Um, are you ready for this? this uh, we'll see. So the way this works is we're going to ask you 10 of the most difficult, <laughs> nerve-wracking, essential life questions. Essential life questions <laughs> and you must answer them in full honesty. So, Okay. Or have, just deflect you and, have and si- don't. <laughs> you have 60 seconds. Per question. Per question. Okay. You must say the first thing that comes to mind. One word only? No, no. no. Oh, okay. No. Okay. You're, you, good. You're good. But if you want to do one word only, that's cool too, and you don't have to. But all right, cool. Um, all right, so. Am I starting? Yeah. Okay. So I have to preface this because people can't see you. You have this amazing <laughs> jacket, amazing denim jacket with like, the most amazing collection of buttons that I've ever seen and that I'm very envious of because I have like four and they all say writer. Like, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> in some language, vanity. Anyway, which one of those is your favorite? And you have to describe it. Oh, okay. For our um, listeners. So, 50 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> or if not a favorite, then like, which one did you acquire in like the most like, Crazy way. No, that's a totally different question. That's like the second question. No, actually, okay. They, okay. but I do think I want to answer both questions the same. So I have one that is purple and has a rat on it, and it has um, the word follow and yellow letters above it. And I went to see this comedian in Austin. Um, his name is Chris Gethard, and he did a set. And I really like him because he did this HBO special called Career Suicide where he actually like talks about his mental illness and becoming a comedian. So I... Um, Went to say hi to him after his set, and he like told me he liked his pins, and um, and then I said, oh well, do you have a pin or whatever? And he literally just happened. He just like went into his cash bag 
and just happened to have this one pin from forever ago, and he just gave it to me wow. because I was a pin enthusiast. He said, <laughs> "That's <laughs> dope." So that's my I favorite, just because the story. Yeah, yeah the story. Yeah. That's um, awesome. Along the same lines, uh, without looking right now, the number of pins on that jacket. Ooh. Oh, um, I think it's cl- it's over fifty, and but I don't think it's quite a hundred. And some of them fall off. A couple have fallen off that's that I have to I get replaced. Yeah, well, that's why I can't have my own denim jacket because, like, the four that I have, like, two, three of them will constantly fall off or they're getting caught on something. I'm like, damn it. Do you, I don't even know how you wash the jacket. Like, do you have to take all the pins yeah, off? Yeah, you have to take do them you, off. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I get annoyed by that, too. Well, that, was, that didn't count as a question, by the way. There were still two questions. Okay. That's good stuff. Awesome, awesome. Favorite place in Houston for a cup of coffee or tea, whatever your beverage of choice is? Um, well, lately I've really, uh, and it's outside the loop. Good. Yes. Good on you. Outside the loop. So okay, we're outside the loop. Um, Dandelion Cafe actually yeah, is like my new favorite. Wait, 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 wait. It's actually out this? by us. Um, what? Well, it was. 610 Southwest. It's Bel Air and Chimney Rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that means outside of town. Southwest. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I just moved over there. Did <gasps> you? We'll have to hang out. Outside of town? Yes. Oh, wait, wait, I didn't know you were, we're on this. We're out in Mo City. What? Missouri. We're, all, oh, okay. we're in Houston. We're in Stafford. No. Not me and Fondren. We're like not that far. Okay. Yeah, you're fine. It's Houston. It's not far. <laughs> it's Houston I close. Mean, it's, and all, it's all traffic everywhere yeah. anyway at yeah. this point. So, um, awesome. But yeah, I really, I really like that place and I like the staff and I don't know. I just, it's really cute. and Yeah, yeah I like it there too. Um, cup of coffee or tea when writing? It's a good question. If I'm out at a cafe, it's usually coffee. And if I'm in, it's tea typically, depending on the time of day. But yeah. Also, because I Facebook stalk you, um, or the algorithm does, I don't know. Uh, so I see all your posts. But you post a lot of James Baldwin quotes. Yes. So my question, this might be a difficult one. Favorite James Baldwin book? Oh. I mean, Giovanni's, Giovanni's Room like stole my heart when I was a young person, and it, will, it would just be really hard for me to give that up. But also, um, Notes of a Native Son mm-hmm. is probably a close second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's one of my favorites. Favorite Baldwin quote? No, like she feels like seven a day. Like, are you serious? Like, it's constant. Oh my God, that's going to be a tough one. Well, let me, let me, let me, let me rephrase the question in a different way. Mm-hmm. Do, does this quote exist in your humble abode? Like, is a quote in your house? Is there a quote in your house? Oh, that is a good question. There isn't right now, actually. <sighs> that I have to rectify that, actually. Then... Cool. What, so, is there we, one that like resonates the most with you, or that you constantly come back to? Maybe. Oh my God, this is like major putting me on the spot. Let me think about this for a second. Um, uh, Fifty seconds. <laughs> you just said earlier not to cause stress to our guests. This is why when you said we're going to make this thirty seconds, I was like, <laughs> it has to be a minute. Okay. No, I think we're confusing. No, it's just like, I, I have to, well, also, I just love so many of them I that know. they're yeah, now just okay. like just all colliding in mind, <laughs> like, words. Okay, you can come back to it, okay. maybe. We, okay. can, we can ask something else. That's um, fine. What is, like, the, I don't know if it's the most interesting, or what's, like, a, a one of the most memorable, like, reactions that you've had from, like, a young adult or, like, a teen well, to Well, actually, your I do want to go back to Baldwin Okay, quick, yes, go I might for forget, it. Get, but, okay. um, you know, in his, his autobiographical mm-hmm. note section from um, Notes of the Native Son where he says, I wasn't fit for the jungle or the tribe. Mm-hmm. And when he's sort of thinking about 
trying to appropriate the white centuries as a black person. That's probably like one of the first first quotes that I remember reading that I really related to, um, like from like mixed race. Yeah. Awesome. Good. Okay. We kind of see. That was 60 seconds. I was just jumping ahead. So yes. So then most memorable or like surprising reaction from like a young person, like at a reading or for your book, like that you've had so far, do you think? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the the thing that I told you earlier about the first queer teen of color actually responding, mm. she, the excerpt she responded to is when Poppy and Juniper meet. Mm. And, um, and she was just like, just doing all of these like, oh, oh. And it was like, <laughs> yeah. it was really so validating for me because yeah. it was actually the first time I had a teen in the audience, the first time I even sort of saw a teen read the book at all. Um, like I had had no clear, like no idea what a teen was going to do with the book. So that was probably, like that still stands out in my mind um, as a really like just a strong example to me that I had somehow been able to connect the language yeah. to yeah. young people, yeah. The right track, nice. Um, the fastest you've ever read a book. Like from cover to cover. Like in like literal. I mean, like, I've, I've like a, like because the example I read Frankenstein in like two days, mm-hmm, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh my god, I just did that. Wow. So was there ever a book that did that for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny that you bring up Frankenstein because Frankenstein is a big book for me. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like I've read a lot of books within like a day. But okay, one that I was surprised by recently, I read Children of Blood and Bone and I thought it was going to oh, take me weeks. No, oh. I heard really good things me, about that book. It took me like two, two to three days because, and it's huge. Right. Yeah. It's because a, I just like, actually, I couldn't put it, I literally couldn't put it down. Um, nice. yeah, so, so. so you've mentioned some, so earlier, I think we were talking, you had mentioned some fan fiction about like Anne Rice and they are mentioning some other things. So if there, so... Is there a genre that like you wish you could write in or that like you've played with or want to, but you're just like, oh, I don't know. Screenplay is something I'm always trying to play with, but the format is eludes me. Like it's just so I'm awful at it. It's so hard. I wanted to write a screenplay as a child before I wanted to write anything else, but Mm. I I've just never I don't know enough about camera angles. I know it's so weird. I'm like, huh? And I don't like thinking about what's behind the story and the story at and the same all time. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's a little bit like writing a play, but it still it's seems no, far. Yeah, yeah. No, no, technical, more technical, more, yeah. technical yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. How many? I don't know. Was that, that six? <laughs> <laughs> we lost track. We lost track. Okay. Um, when you have a library in your house or your apartment or wherever you're staying, um, how many shelves in this bookshelf? We don't even know the answer to that for our own house. Yeah, we do. We Why have four. You? Oh, just like when you buy a standard shelf, you Like mean? when you buy a standard shelf, like when you're looking for a bookshelf, like how big, wide, lots of slots, one row. So you're asking me about the shelf I actually have or the shelf I would the, the to buy? The shelf that you have. <laughs> and then more. if you're going to buy another one, like what's, what's going to be the thing? So actually, I recently moved and a friend helped me build this. I actually have a picture of it on my phone. <gasps> helped me build this. Um, let me get rid of this notification so you can see it. It's Ooh. like this one oh, wow. huge 
bookshelf that actually not only fits every single book that I own, but there's a room for more. And Anne is from Ikea. And you can just, there are pieces you just sort of put together. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, yeah, and he, he's just like a genius whiz at it. And he just like helped me build this whole thing. And yeah, so, so I've never actually had like this huge bookshelf that fits all my books, but it's, it's pretty wonderful to it be able to awesome. see them all yeah. at one time. And I've never had that. It's always been kind of piecemeal. We'll, so. we'll post a photo of that on our Twitter <laughs> well, we so you can see well, it. We um, yeah. Yeah. Well, did, did your library, how's it organized? Mm. So I've organized it various ways throughout my life. I've done it by color. I've done it by height. I've done it genre, alphabetical. And right now it's, it's, in, it's in height mode. Hmm. Which is both exciting and also frustrating. <laughs> Cause, <laughs> yeah. Exciting because I'm like, oh, like it makes me look at books I wouldn't be looking for. Um, but also, you know, it's you very hard to find which But it's very pretty and right. it's very ordered, you right. know. Right. Well, who is that? Because you do teach at HCC. Yes. So he's going to be college for those who aren't familiar with the lingo. Um, so who is like your favorite or one of your favorite writers to teach? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, gosh, I teach so many things. Uh, <laughs> let me think about this for a second. Hmm. In terms of like how the students respond, or just or someone for, that you keep coming back to that you do like regularly, like who's regularly on your syllabus. Well, since we're talking about YA, I can talk about how the perks of being a wallflower oh, is something cool. I teach a lot. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, teach it across classes because I think the students really respond to it. And recently, actually, a student told me that she got together with her boyfriend because of this film, <laughs> the film of Perks of Being a Wallflower, because, you know, they're sort of like having this, he and the, the, the love interest are sort of friends, but they're not really, um, nothing really happens until the end. Sorry if I spoiled it for everyone. But, um, <laughs> but she, she had this best friend who she had feelings for and mm. made her like go and pursue, pursue that. that. Oh, you know, okay. so that was cute. Well. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I think it's the last one, yeah. No, we still have two more. <laughs> two more? Oh, okay. uh, longest syllabus you've ever written? Longest syllabus? What kind of question? Look at how many pages long. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, we're talking about just my part, I guess, and not all the, like, departmental pages of everything. Hmm. I mean, I don't really write syllabi that are too long, so it would probably be, like, three or four pages. Uh, It would be, um, I teach what they call forms of literature class, where I teach, um, like, Celeste Ng, and I teach KSA Lehman's Heavy, and um, this education of Cameron Post, so I try to teach all these different um, writers that are sort of intersecting identities. And so I really try to go into why I think it's important, particularly in this cultural moment that we're in, to really bring up these voices. So, yeah. Favorite place that your writing has taken you? Mm, place meaning... Uh, like physical, like town, city, country, location, like place where you're like, wow, it's really, or I never thought I'd be here, or this place is really. Oh, cute. an actual, an like, actual, actual oh, okay. <laughs> not like a mental 
play like that. And we, we can talk about that, but I'm just saying like, you know, whether you, when you were on tour or like even before, with oh, your writing, okay, things yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I read in Canada for mm. the first time in my life and that was, I read in Montreal and I read in Toronto and I'd never mm. been yeah. in Toronto before. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's actually been really exciting to, you know, just see a totally different sort of yeah. literary landscape. Yeah. yeah. Was it winter or was it spring? It was winter. It's always winter in Canada. Well, yeah, it <laughs> was, like but it was actual winter. <laughs> winter. In, yeah. Did you wear a scarf? This is like question 12 now. <laughs> I mean, you I don't know. know, it's just whatever. Just- well, it was funny because when I was in Montreal, it was very cold. It was like 19 degrees or something. Oh. And then I had to go to New York and I was like, oh, this is going to be fine because it's going to be over 10 degrees warmer in New York. Mm-hmm. But the wind is a different. so intense in New York that it felt, somehow it felt worse. But I think also mentally I was like, oh, it's going to be easier. And so and then, then it, it just was. So is there anything else coming up that you'd like to share with our listeners that you're going to be at or any way that they can reach um, out to you? So in Houston, I'll be doing a workshop, a nonfiction workshop for WriteFest in nice. May. So that's yeah. like the next Houston thing. Um, oh, social media? You yeah, can, where sure, can people get a hold of you? You can follow me on Twitter at Addie Brooke or Blue Juniper oh, um, nice. on Instagram. And awesome. they're both open, and I just so you do, do you have a, bunch a website of things. that people can find you at. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two addytsai.org, addytsai.com, but I think addytsai.org is the one I've worked on the most. Sweet. And so, out there, and please pick up a copy for yourself, for your teen, for your me. young adult person in your life. Because <laughs> I don't have Dear a copy. Twin <laughs> uh, by Addie Sai out now. And uh, yeah, we've been having a great conversation. Thank you for joining us and uh, we'll, taking your Friday night to chat we'll, with us. We'll be back in a few weeks. Soon. At some point. <laughs> we'll be back soon with more guests from the Houston area. The I think the next two guests that we might have somewhere in this, Josh will probably cut this out. It's either Outspoken Bean <laughs> or Roberto Tejada. And then both Houston writers, and then maybe Natalie Diaz, but we haven't. Mm. We have not confirmed. We haven't confirmed. Unconfirmed fancy. reports. Unconfirmed fancy. reports. <laughs> Very fancy. Very fancy. Uh, thank so you thank so much. Thank, thank you, you for thank you. for doing this. And uh, Josh, you're amazing. As usual. And uh, Jasmine, you're amazing. Aww. Aww. She's gonna go black. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we'll talk later. I'm Jasmine Mendez. And I'm Lupa Mendez. And this has been a podcast episode of Inkwell, a collaboration between Tintero Projects and Imprint Houston. Thank you for listening to Inkwell, a collaboration between Tintero Projects and Imprint in Houston, Texas, a city with a wellspring of literary activity. Inkwell is hosted by Jasmine and Lupe Mendez of Tintero Projects, produced by Rich Levy and Krupa Parikh of Imprint, and recorded, engineered, and edited by Josh Walker with 150 Media House. Inkwell is made possible by a grant from the City of Houston through the Houston Arts Alliance and Imprint's other generous supporters. For more information, visit imprinthouston.org or tinteroprojects.wordpress.com. For feedback on this and future episodes, email inkwell at imprinthouston.org. We also invite listeners near and far to attend our readings and workshops. Until next time, keep reading and keep writing.